the most important marker when it comes to uh, lipids, if you will. It's, it's certainly not total cholesterol. We know uh, that that is a very poor marker. Uh, uh, it's not total LDL. It's not total HDL. It's uh, the best ratio is the ApoB to ApoA ratio. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Jocker's Functional Nutrition Podcast, the show designed to give you science-based solutions to improve your health and life. I'm David Jockers, doctor of natural medicine, chiropractor, and functional nutritionist, and I'm the host on this podcast. And I'm here to tell you that your body was created to heal itself. And on this show, we focus on strategies you can apply today to heal and function at your best. Thanks for spending time with me, and let's go into the show. Well, hey guys, welcome back to the Functional Nutrition Podcast, where we really look at food as biological information for our cells, our tissues, and our systems, really teaching our body how to, how to adapt to its environment. And I have got a really good friend here, Dr. Jack Wolfson, who uh, runs an integrative cardiology uh, center. And basically, uh, you know, he, he wrote a book, great book called The Paleocardiologist. And um, he also has a great podcast, The Healthy Heart Show. And so, Dr. Jack, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be on with you, David. And, uh, you know, as always, big fan of your work and love your new book and, big, you know, promoting that through all my circles. And, uh, you know, you just, uh, you, you produce, uh, you know, quality, such quality information that is a, a, a science deep dive, but you know you really make it very uh, understandable and interesting to pretty much any any reader, and I and I do really appreciate that. Well, thanks so much, Jack. I appreciate that as well. And um, you know, let's let's start. Let's just talk about your journey. Um, obviously, you've got a background. You're a cardiologist. You're, I believe your dad was a cardiologist, and how you really ventured into into nutrition because most cardiologists are not really focusing or emphasizing on nutrition and Whatever nutrition they are emphasizing is uh, is is really bad, actually. So let's let's go into your story there. Yeah, you know, and I think you know you make that great point is that uh, you know, we're just not trained in nutrition. We're not trained in the healthy lifestyle. We're not trained in evidence based supplements. Uh, we are trained in pharmaceuticals. We are trained in procedures, and that's what I spent. The, you know, really the first 10 years of my career doing was angiograms and pacemakers, deciding who goes for surgery, uh, you know, uh, you know, which pharmaceuticals to use. I mean, that's really what it was all about. And really from the first day of medical school, it's almost like that's where things were geared is that there's a pill for every ill. And I did it and I did it very successfully and did it very lucratively. Uh, because the you know the, you know the cardiologists just get paid so well in this mainstream system, so it's very difficult to get those same cardiologists to understand that there's a better way. And just as you said, talking about nutrition, talking about lifestyle. So as my eyes were opened up to this, and I'll give my wife every single bit of credit in the world to opening up my eyes to natural health and wellness and making that change. Um, uh, you know, to do what I do now, it's really been just a monumental shift. But again, there's a lot of speed bumps. There's a lot of issues with with doctors like me uh, changing. There's medical legal issues. There's board issues. Again, you know, government kind of pharmaceutical companies are really you know, conspiring to keep the the message that you know, doctors like you and I are trying to put out there. But 
yeah, you know, I'm a conventionally trained cardiologist. My father uh, was a cardiologist. I became a cardiologist four years in med school, three years internal medicine, three years of cardiology, and then ultimately 10 years on the job. And then I quit that uh, large cardiology group, opened up my private uh, cardiology practice in Arizona and, uh, you know, wrote the book. And uh, most recently, I have a chapter in, in a textbook of, of integrative cardiology hmm. by, uh, you know, the chief editor is Dr. Mark Houston. So I think uh, I think we're getting in there, as, as you yeah. know, and so many people get to hear this message. Well, it's fantastic to hear really getting that that message out, because, you know, typically, obviously, in, in your modern medical approach, there's a huge emphasis on cholesterol. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And, um, you know, a lot of people are concerned about their cholesterol being high. What is a healthy cholesterol? And so, uh, so from a cardiologist, you know, integrative cardiologist, how do we, how do we start? How should we look at cholesterol? Yeah, cholesterol is the perfect uh, is the poster child for kind of the, the, the vilification of, of 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 the human body, and it's like you know just. Whenever you say the word cholesterol, for anyone who's listening or watching us, you know, right now, when we talk about cholesterol, what comes to your mind? What comes to most people's mind is, is heart attack, stroke, uh, a clog in, in an artery. Uh, we think of cholesterol, we think about cholesterol-rich foods, and we say, okay, stay away from eggs and stay away from, from, uh, from eat, meat and, uh, and animal products. Uh, and the reality can be, you know, is that the body makes cholesterol for a reason. Every animal species makes cholesterol for a reason. The body's not making mistakes here. The body reacts to the environment that we give it. So cholesterol, of course, is so important for uh, for every single cell of the body. That cell membrane called the cell is is a cell fence is the fence around the cell is loaded with cholesterol. Cholesterol makes our vitamin D. Cholesterol makes all of our sex hormones. Cholesterol is for our digestion. So cholesterol is a very important molecule. And I recently, I did a, a, a webinar that I did. Um, uh, we had 400 people on the webinar that were paid on the webinar because people want to learn this stuff. And the webinar was titled Your Perfect Cholesterol hmm. because it's all about finding the perfect cholesterol for each one of us, but trying to get rid of this negative stigma and the vilification of this life-sustaining molecule that we can't live without. Yeah, absolutely. And so obviously a lot of misinformation out there about cholesterol. So what do you look at when you're looking at at lab when it comes to triglycerides, right? LDL, HDL, are there certain ratios you're looking at? Um, what are you trying to figure out there? Yeah, and, and I do. And I appreciate that you put this into your books and your website and you have all this great information, you know, that's out there and easy to digest. I think right now that the most important marker when it comes to uh, lipids, if you will. It's, it's certainly not total cholesterol. We know uh, that that is a very poor marker. Uh, uh, it's not total LDL. It's not total HDL. It's uh, the best ratio is the ApoB to ApoA ratio. And ApoB is the stitching of LDL baseballs, but along with IDLs and VLDLs and other, and other lipoprotein particles. And ApoA is the stitching on HDL. So we want to have less of these ApoBs, more of the ApoAs, therefore the lower the ratio, and this is really just kind of like a linear thing according to research uh, dating back to 2004, 
Uh, so the lower the ApoB, ApoA ratio, so that's the number you want to ask your doctor to check. ApoB, ApoA, look at a ratio, the lower the better. Uh, I would say 0.6 is probably, you know, is, is, is getting into the range of where you want to be. Uh, and then also, I think there's been a lot of publicity most recently about LP little a, mm -hmm. uh, which is another type of LDL like particle that everybody needs to find out about 20% of the population has it, uh, putting them at a 50% increased risk of, of cardiovascular events. So we need to know about LP little a, and I agree with you also checking those triglycerides because even though triglyceride is kind of one of these old time markers, it still remains very valid. And once again, for it, it's very linear that the higher your, your triglycerides go, so does your cardiovascular risk. Right, absolutely. And a lot of people aren't getting the ApoA, ApoB, or a lot of doctors aren't running that test. So somebody gets a standard lipid panel, right, which is, you know, people are getting run all the time. They're looking at just LDL, just HDL, just triglycerides. They're missing, you know, a big part of the picture. But what should they look at there? Like, what, sh what would be a healthy range for triglycerides, for example? Well, you know, triglycerides, I think the lower the better. So I think, uh, you know, the, the standard lab testing goes up to 150 and puts 150 in the normal range. But you and I both know that's incorrect. Uh, we're looking for definitely below 100, probably somewhere between 50 and 75, yeah. uh, I think is a healthy number. I think, you know, the people in your, in your keto sphere and people that are going hardcore keto for a while, they can probably drive that number uh, uh, even lower, but I think below 75 is really the key. But you know what's, you know, conventional medicine, conventional cardiology, they're not even interested anymore in even checking the labs. Their right. protocols are if you have a history of coronary artery disease, essentially, we're going to put you on the highest dose of statin drug um, and then see how your numbers look. And if your numbers after that are not appropriate, then we're going to put you on an injectable pharmaceutical called a PCSK9 inhibitor. So their goal is to drive your LDL down as low as possible. And they don't seem to have a problem with levels of LDLs, uh, you know, uh, uh, 10, 15, 20, 30. But I think that the consequences of that are absolutely catastrophic. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to continue to, you know, science will continue to show us that. Yeah, because LDL is so important. It's actually a bus carrying all your fat-soluble nutrients. You know, it helps bring coenzyme Q10 to cells, right? I mean, it's got a very, very important function. So if you lower it like that, you know, now you're at risk for fat-soluble nutrient deficiencies. You're not getting those out to the cells. Cells can't heal. Because that's what I've always heard. LDL is like a healing compound. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, once again, I think it's just, let's just take it back to common sense. Like, why does my body make something? Why does my body have LDL? Why do all mammals have LDL particles? And just as you said, it's that bus that shuttles the passengers from the liver to the rest of the body. And those passengers, CoQ10, fat-soluble nutrients, also a lot of antioxidant enzymes, yeah. um, a lot of things that help to prime the immune system. So I think that's why people can have really high LDLs and it can be not necessarily problematic in and of itself, but it's more of a sign that there's something going on that's inflaming the body, irritating the body, immune system activation. And then as we fix those sources of inflammation, then LDL will naturally come down. But the idea of lowering it artificially just to lower the number down, I think is clearly problematic.
Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now I've seen people start on a ketogenic diet and for, I would say the majority of people see a huge improvement. HDL goes up, LDL either stays the same. Sometimes it'll go up a little bit, um, maybe down a little bit and then triglycerides go down significantly. But I have seen some people where the LDL jumps up quite a bit, sometimes hundred points, 150 points. What are some reasons why that might happen when somebody goes on a low carb diet or, or just really happen? Why would somebody have a high, very high LDL to begin with? What are, what are some factors there? Well, I think that there's, um, uh, there are some genetic factors that have to do with the way that LDL is made, the way that LDL is cleared from the body, the way that LDL is processed from the body. Um, that's that's certainly number one. Number two, as we change any kind of diet, sometimes there are you know sudden changes in the body, and that takes time for that to you know for it to um, you know prove itself out. But I think also, David, it kind of goes back to what we talked about about that ratio, because very oftentimes, yes, we can see LDL go up dramatically. Um, as a number, and we can see APO, but APOB typically doesn't go up as dramatically as that total yeah. uh, volume of, of LDL does. So APOB does go up, but I don't think it goes up dramatically as LDL does. So I think APOB continues to be the better measure. And what I find is that APOA dramatically shoots up. So the ratio either stays the same on keto, but often gets, mm. you know, and most commonly certainly gets better. So I think that's really the main factor uh, involved involved with that. But there may be some nuances where where the body genetically just can't handle uh, some of these higher amounts of fats, uh, and therefore plays changes you know with with the, those ratios and and not to, to not to our liking. We once again where you do see that really markedly elevated LDL. Um, but I find even still that the the inflammation is coming down in all of those people. Yeah. Like I'm not seeing anybody with inflammation going up on keto. Right. And I think that if you ask me what's more important as far as risk is concerned, is it inflammation or abnormal lipids? I'm going to say every time that it's inflammation because you can have all the LDL particles floating around in the world. If they're not oxidized, if they're not damaged, then it doesn't matter. It's only the damaged particles uh, that are problematic. Yeah, that's a really key point. And so for the listeners out there, he just said, LDL or total cholesterol is not an issue. It's really the oxidated oxidated LDL, that would be an issue. So if you keep your inflammation, your oxidative stress down, then, uh, you know, again, you can have high LDL and be completely healthy. So it's not something to be overly concerned about. So really good stuff. Let's transition a little bit into uh, high blood pressure. What are you seeing as far as like major causes of high blood pressure? What kinds of strategies do you use with your clients to help bring that down? Uh, well, you know, um, uh, and this kind of takes me back to the cholesterol you know, story as well. I think that um, uh, when it comes to the healthy lifestyle, we can all talk about different diets, right? We can talk about, uh, should I go vegan? Should I go paleo? Should I go carnivore? Should I go keto? Should I go vegetarian, Mediterranean? There's a million different diets out there. And we can argue about that. And I think it's certainly one part of the equation. But when it comes to blood pressure and everything else cardiovascular, let's talk about the importance of sunshine. Hmm. And the sun is another one of those things, right? Like cholesterol that's been yeah. so vilified over the last 50 years 
when all of life is outside in the sun, we're the only ones that are inside. All plants are outside. All animals are, uh, you know, are, are outside. So to embrace that sunshine, and sunshine lowers blood pressure. We know that, of course, sunshine makes you know vitamin D. People with the highest levels of vitamin D have the lowest risk of everything. Vitamin D receptors are in just about every single cell and tissue in the body and help to lower blood pressure down. The sun hits the skin, releasing nitrate and turns it into nitric oxide. Again, as a vasodilator, the, the sun helps uh, obviously um, uh, you know, cranks up levels of melatonin for when we sleep. Now we've got melatonin that's there, and melatonin lowers inflammation, lowers blood pressure. So there's a lot of different things that the sun is doing to help me, you know, to to normalize that blood pressure. So other things that are you know affect blood pressure, uh, lack of sleep. Lack of sleep is probably the single biggest risk factor for all disease. All the environmental chemicals and, and pollutants are known to raise blood pressure. Air pollution markedly accelerates blood pressure risk. Uh, stress, anxiety, depression, mental health issues, you know, do it as well. And of course, everyone knows lack of physical activity does it. So a lot of different things uh, mm-hmm. raise blood pressure. The one thing that is not an issue, right, we don't have a pharmaceutical deficiency. Yeah. But again, as a, as a, as a medical trained cardiologist, who used to have 10 minute office visits with patients. Okay, your blood pressure is high. Here's your pharmaceutical. Come back in three weeks and we'll check your numbers again. And if your numbers are high, we'll add a second pharmaceutical, a third pharmaceutical. And you know it's a problem because these pharmaceutical companies, they come up with these kind of three in one drugs where they've got three different pharmaceuticals inside of one capsule. And oftentimes that wasn't enough. And, you know, David, when I, when I transitioned to a natural cardiologist, um, seeing people that are on four and five different blood pressure drugs and blood pressure is still sky high and nobody can figure it out. And we're all like, why isn't this stuff working? And as you know, it's not working because we never address the cause and all these fundamental things that we need to address, you know, regarding blood pressure. And as you know, there's there's, uh, I'm, I'm, I am a big fan of, of evidence-based supplements, and there's a ton of evidence-based supplements that are out there for blood pressure control um, that, uh, that helps supplement the healthy lifestyle, and that's what that's all about. Yeah, for sure. And and so I love how you brought up sunshine. In fact, uh, you were the first person that I think coined the term sunshine deficiency, right? So, uh, so I thought that was great, and it actually plays a big role with cholesterol, too. In fact, I wrote about that in my book. Um, I found a study, you know, that was, that's out there. I can't remember exactly what year it came out, but, um, actually after interviewing you for, for a previous event, you talked about sunshine deficiency. So I looked into that with sunshine deficiency and cholesterol. And there's actually a study out there talking about how, uh, you know, actually increasing sun exposure will help lower down your LDL, believe it or not, helps, uh, helps improve LDL metabolism. So it's interesting. Um, and then, you know, with blood pressure, you know, there's definitely some key nutrients. A lot of times people are, are, have certain nutrient deficiencies. What are some of the nutrient deficiencies that you're seeing associated with blood pressure? Well, it's, it's certainly well-known magnesium and potassium deficiencies are linked to high blood pressure. Both of those electrolytes are involved in cellular relaxation. So I think that, um, you know, certainly getting those levels checked, supplementing those. I, I like checking the levels first to see where things are at. Uh, test, you know, don't guess. But, uh, you know, loading up on magnesium, potassium is typically very helpful. I think also the B vitamins uh, uh, 
in, in particular can be very helpful for blood pressure control. You can find a lot of data on pretty much most of the B vitamins. Uh, CoQ10, we talked about, you know, as far as what it means, the fact that it's sitting on that lipid, uh, on that LDL bus getting around the body. And CoQ10 is proven to help uh, reduce blood pressure. Uh, Omega-3s that you only get from eating seafood help to help to modify everything, including, including blood pressure. So a lot of different things we can use from an evidence-based standpoint for blood pressure uh, uh, control. And, um, uh, and then also even just to kind of hit home on that point too, about the vitamin D and, and the, and the sun. So, you know, you know, it, as you just mentioned that when the sun hits the skin, it turns cholesterol running around in, in LDL particles and HDL particles for that matter. But as, as those particles are coursing through the capillaries of the skin, the sun hits, it turns that cholesterol into vitamin D. So now vitamin D goes up, that's good, and cholesterol helps to go down, again, to find your perfect cholesterol. And that certainly sounds like a much better and easier and healthier solution than taking a pharmaceutical. Absolutely. And sunshine also helps boost endorphins and serotonin, so you feel good. So you get that added benefit as well. So definitely really good stuff. Let's talk a little bit about atrial fibrillation, what you're seeing with that, because that's been that's very common and, and growing. A lot more people uh, having experiences with with uh, AFib. So let's talk about that. Yeah, atrial fibrillation is interesting because it really hits a lot of pain points. And probably three quarters of my new patients come from outside of Arizona, and the majority of them have atrial fibrillation. That's what they're there for. Because, you know, frankly, when your blood pressure is high, nobody's really concerned. When your cholesterol is high, you're like, eh. But when you have atrial fibrillation, and now it's kind of twofold, you have symptoms from it. You know, you don't have symptoms from high blood pressure, from high cholesterol. Uh, you, do, you can have symptoms, certainly, from atrial fibrillation, where the heart is beating uh, uh, abnormally, irregularly, typically very fast. So that leads to symptoms, palpitations, lightheadedness, shortness of breath, uh, maybe even passing out, fatigue. That's you know that's atrial fibrillation. And then the other is the stroke risk that goes along with atrial fibrillation. So that certainly gets people's attention very very easily when people talk about whoa, I don't want to have a stroke. Uh, so. Uh, it, it really hits the pain points for a lot of people. And as you said, the the frequency of atrial fibrillation seems to be increasing. Uh, and certainly as, as a population ages, the risk of atrial fibrillation goes up. But we're seeing it in young people. We're seeing it in athletes. And uh, again, mainstream medical doesn't have any reason why. They just say, well, it's just a consequence of getting older or it's just the athletic heart and we're going to put you on a pharmaceutical and or shock you and or ablate you. And again, none of it addresses the cause of why they have it. So that's what I get really into as far as causation of atrial fibrillation. And uh, as, as you point out in, in your books and in your you know, blogs and stuff like that, all these things are from the same cause, whether it's cancer or it's AFib or it's hypertension, dyslipidemia or autoimmune. It's a matter of, you know, you know, these are the causes. Go back to nutrition, go back to sunshine, go back to sleep, go back to stress, go back to physical activity. Um, all these things are, are part and parcel with, with leading to these ultimate diagnosis or all these different labels that us medical doctors are really good at coming up with. And uh, you know, the reality is atrial fibrillation can be dealt with very easily, uh, naturally, and I've been very successful doing so. 
Yes, uh, absolutely. And so, you know, basically what you're saying is that really the, the root is chronic inflammation and there are many different factors that are going to play a role in that. But if you've got chronic inflammation, depending on your body type and how you respond, it may be high blood pressure, it may be AFib, it may be high cholesterol, right? It may be any one of these types of things. Um, and so really the key is keeping that inflammation down and under control. And so let's talk about some diet strategies. I know you're, you're called the, the paleo cardiologist. So let's talk a little bit about paleo diet. And I know you've embraced now um, as well, the carnivore diet, and you've seen results with your, your clients with that as well. So let's talk about those and how you're using them. Well, as you mentioned, it's kind of like, you know, this inflammation is kind of like this middle level area here. So if we say maybe up top, uh, are all these medical diagnoses that we have, and you're right, that common thread is the inflammation in all of them. And you can imagine that if the heart is inflamed, you're going to get atrial fibrillation. Uh, if the blood vessels are inflamed, blood pressure is going to be high. If you're going to, uh, if you have all this inflammation, again, we talked about before how LDL is made to put out that fire, put out the inflammation, but let's talk about going after cause. And we already talked about, well, sunshine deficiency is a cause of inflammation. Poor sleep is a cause of inflammation. Stress in and of itself, mental stress leads to inflammation. And then of course, poor nutrition does. And I think that uh, the the unnatural foods for human consumption are those that uh, eventually will lead to inflammation. And when you follow uh, when you follow paleo, I think you're following the wisdom of our ancestors. You're following evolution. We were hunter gatherers, so why why should we even have the debate about the best way to eat? It is it is hunter gatherer foods. Uh, when hunter-gatherers were not eating oatmeal, they were not having wheat bread, they were not having pasta. Hunter-gatherers, of course, were not having high sugar consumption. Hunter-gatherers were not having dairy products. They weren't going after other animals and milking them and making cheese, yogurt, or butter, uh, or ice cream, certainly, out of, out of the animal's milk. So to me, paleo, as soon as I kind of heard about it, uh, after not learning anything about nutrition, now I start reading all these books. And again, it just, it passes the common sense test. And I think that my preference when it comes to paleo, it is a lower carb paleo. And that is where you will go into ketosis. Mm -hmm. So whether you call it clean keto or paleo keto, that's what I prefer. And then I think like there is, you know, seasonal variation of that. And I know you talk about, about feast and famine cycles, you know, within there and you kind of get into, again, yeah, that seasonal variation or daily variation or weekly variation. And I love all that stuff because number one, I think it's, I think it is medically beneficial. And number two, I think it's much easier to follow when you kind of have these, um, uh, you know, ebbs and flows of higher carb paleo, lower carb paleo, getting into keto paleo, and then also, uh, you know, carnivore and carnivore, right? It's so anathema to what cardiologists would talk about. Yeah. Uh, it's a, such a shock to the system to talk about carnivore, but we've done three carnivore challenges with a lot of people, uh, and, and the results have been spectacular. We've run about 150 people through our, our seven-day carnivore challenge, and, and just in those seven days, just getting people to realize, hey, you can do this for seven days, you can do it for longer, you can cycle again back and forth between paleo and going into ketosis, and it's a carnivore. In most cases, carnivore, when done strictly, will bring you into ketosis as well. Hmm. And uh, 
And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I mean, seriously, David, what is, what is a food that is more, that is more nutrients and more beneficial than a whole sardine, like the whole sardine, how, how, how can you, there is no amount of kale or broccoli yeah. Uh, or, or anything that matches with the nutritional value of a whole sardine or eating. And of course, we're talking about the best of the best. Everything I always mention, of course, is always organic. All meats and, and seafood, you know, the seafood is wild. The, the meat is always the best of the best, pasture-raised, you know, free-range grass-fed, pasture-raised eggs, the best of the best products. Um, you know, beef liver from a, from a grass-fed animal. There, there, there's, no, there's no combination of plants that can, you know, can even come close. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just all the mitochondrial support nutrients that you're going to find in those things, you really can't get those from plants. And so, uh, so you're absolutely right as far as that goes. And so when people go on this carnivore challenge, seven days, what, what types of foods, obviously they're just sticking to animal products, what types of foods do you endorse and you have them eating? Well, I typically push more of the of the seafood side because most people don't have an issue eating, uh, you know, beef and other uh, and other kind of you know meat products, if you will, land based uh, animal products. Uh, but you know, I really try and push that seafood side of things. So I push a lot of sardines, anchovy, wild salmon. Uh, also shellfish and eating crab and lobster, uh, oysters and clams and shrimp. And then also uh, the, the, the fish eggs or even the shrimp eggs, hmm. what, is, what, is, you know, what is called roe. And whether it is a uh, chicken egg or a fish egg, it contains all the nutrients that a fish or a chicken need to come to life. Yeah. It doesn't get any more nutritious than that. Um, and, and back to this whole sardine thing, I think we can live on whole sardines uh, for a lifetime and eat nothing else. Uh, I guess uh, maybe it works for uh, it works for penguins and it works for other kind of large, uh, you know, predator fish. Why couldn't it work for humans? So, in any case, that's the story with that. So, so again, just to kind of summarize what carnivore means. Uh, yes, in those seven days, no plants whatsoever everything is all meat seafood eggs and then again trying to push more of that seafood but then also getting the organs in their liver heart kidney we talked about coq10 and the importance of coq10 for mitochondrial function the fuel factories inside of every cell that make things work and the best source of CoQ10 is heart, is heart tissue. Uh, unfortunately, our American palate has kind of gotten away from that, but the more we embrace, whether it's beef heart or, or chicken hearts tend to be a lot more palatable uh, for most people, especially from the start. But uh, it's been fun. It's been an exciting experience. And, and how are people seasoning those, right? Because I mean, beef liver isn't exactly the most tasty type of food. So... Um has a very gamey type of uh, type of flavor to it. So, how are people seasoning these? Like, what, what what approach are they using if they're not using plants? Are you using herbs, salt, anything like that? Well, I think you know. Listen, you've got young children as well, and it's like kids will gravitate to the foods that they're given, and they'll develop a palate for that. So, with our two year old, she can do she can do raw liver, she can really? do cooked liver. Um, uh, I think that the probably the healthiest and, and maybe the most palatable way to do it, that combination of health and palatability 
is when you put it in the dehydrator. So you take that liver, uh, heart, or kidney, and you slug, and you make it. You you uh, basically kind of take it out of the freezer. You let it thaw a little bit so it's easy to slice, and you create those thin slices. You put it in the dehydrator, and it comes out like it comes out like a like a jerky form, um, and and is a lot more palatable again to do it that way. Uh, what I tell people about going carnivore is that. The challenge is not for me. Like, um, we don't offer prizes for who does it the best, and uh, yeah. we do offer we do offer certain bonuses for people that show their recipes, show you know, interact and stuff like that. That's a whole nother story, you know, inside of our inner private Facebook group. But the challenge is up to you. If you want to do carnivore, but you want to add a lot of herbs and spices to your recipes, you can. There's no problem, you know, with that. If you want, certainly adding in sea salt, uh, uh, that that I think is part of the program because I think that helps, you know, for things like when you know keto flu and stuff like that that you're an expert in. That's uh, I, you know, I find that certainly beneficial. Um, the spices you can add in, but again, if somebody wants to go carnivore and they want to have an avocado a day, they can do it. They can have green leafy vegetables. You start to get out of the carnivore plan. Um, and it eventually may throw you out of ketosis, but the idea of going carnivore is not necessarily to go into ketosis. It's to yeah. get rid of these food addictions is, yeah. is I think really the best part. Right? Like a major elimination diet. Yes. Yeah. And, and you talk about inflammation, uh, these, these pro-inflammatory foods, uh, Stephen Gundry has made this, you know, very famous talking about lectins in his book, but you know, you and I'm sure your mom and in your, your training, for, you know, since you were born, it's like you guys were talking about lectins, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago uh, was, was that was part of the conversation. And now it's become a lot more uh, you know, prevalent as far as where mainstream uh, is at, mainstream nutrition is at. But when you eat animal products, the animals don't have any defense mechanisms after you get past their teeth and their claws. Uh, and their ability to run or attack you. Now they've got nothing that's there, and now you just get all the benefits, all the nutrients. So all these pro-inflammatory foods just go by the wayside, and we're seeing just dramatic results in the way people feel and in their lab values as well. Yeah, absolutely. And so just to summarize that for the listeners there, so plants have these defense systems that protect them from predators. It's kind of like chemical warfare. It's like microdosing chemicals that weaken their predator, the weaken, you know, the people that are eating them, which is us, right? And so whereas animals, they're going to either run or fight. And so once they're dead, there's no defense systems, there's no chemical warfare there that's uh, that's going after us. And so we can eat those and uh, you know, as long as we're getting well-sourced, pasture-raised products, we're going to have minimal amounts of, of toxins in there. So that's what he's saying with that. And uh, let's finish up here, Dr. Jack. What are, um, what are your top five best foods, plants and animal-based foods that uh, you feel like would be, you know, should be really in every single person's diet? Well, I mean, I, you know, once again, going back to those animal products, so uh, eating the meats, eating the organs, eating the seafood. Again, I think that seafood is the healthiest food on the planet. And even when I spoke uh, at an event a year and a half ago with uh, with John Mackey, the CEO and, and founder of Whole Foods, and uh, Mackey gets up there on stage and he's kind of carrying this vegan flag. Um, but then even he kind of backs up and says, if there was one animal product I was going to eat, it would be wild salmon. 
Um, I think eggs, I mean, an egg, once again, whether from a fish or from a chicken, it takes, you know, it's everything that the chicken can uh, come to life is in there. It's a multivitamin. You can't raise a chicken on oatmeal. Uh, so, so getting those eggs into the diet. And then as far as like the plant-based superfoods, yeah, I mean, things go on and on and on uh, as far as the possibilities uh, there. Uh, personally, I guess my favorite out of that bunch is I love eating the uh, you know the leafy vegetables. My favorite is dandelion. I absolutely love fresh dandelion, mm. uh, and uh, you know, and and especially if you go somewhere and you can just pick it naturally right yeah. in, in the spring, it's growing, and you can go to a place where you know that it wasn't sprayed, and you can go get amazing dandelion just growing in the wild, and and that's free. You can yeah. just go out there and get it. Um, and then after that, you know, I I, I do enjoy nuts and seeds. Uh, but they have to be prepared correctly, and, and so therefore they have to be soaked overnight in, in of course, quality water. And then you can leave them in the refrigerator, take it out, strain the water, and then eat the nuts and seeds the next day. And one of my favorite things for breakfast is just to take a bowl of, of nuts and seeds, throw in some coconut flakes, some raw cacao nibs, which yeah. are loaded with fiber but also loaded with magnesium. Yeah. Um, and then adding a nut milk to that. So if you want, I, I, I think that is absolutely delicious. And uh, that's one of my favorite things as well when we're not having bacon and eggs. Yeah, I love it, man. Well, really good, really good stuff. Well, um, any last words of inspiration and uh, where can people find out more information about you? I know you got a great book out there, Paleo Cardiologist. You also have a great podcast, Healthy Heart Show. Um, what else are you working on right now? Well, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, a lot of people are focusing on right now that is a uh, millennia old issue, but is a 21st century crisis is uh, mold, environmental mold toxins. And um, uh, I, I think people need to get tested for, for mold, whether it's coming from the food or it's coming from the environment. You can do so by checking. It's a simple urine test. Uh, for example, when we sell on our, on our website, uh, the doctorswolfson.com backslash mold. And there that'll take take you to the to information and also to the link to purchase the kit for this mold kit again to identify if you're being exposed to environmental mold. Uh, that I, I've done I've done webinars on this, I've done videos on this on how the mold mycotoxins hmm. uh, interfere with cardiovascular function, including leading the atrial fibrillation. So I'd love to see people you know, check that out. But um, the books, The Paleo Cardiologist, the website, thedoctorswolfson.com, uh, our private Facebook group uh, is Natural Heart Doctor. And again, uh, David, Dr. David, I appreciate yeah, everything that you do, everything that you stand for. Uh, it's so nice to have people like you on the side of health and wellness. So I, I applaud you. I love, again, love your new book. Uh, can't wait to read more of your blogs and your contents and, and, and content and your summits. And, uh, and, and again, I know how much work it takes to put all these th things on. And I know you are such a family man, you know, with your wife and your kids uh, to be able to do all this stuff. Uh, you know, you have to stay healthy, which is another <laughs> motivating factor to live this life. So yeah. kudos to you, my friend. Y'all, thank you. I appreciate that. And for those of you guys that are just getting to know Jack, he's got an amazing wife, Heather, who is actually a chiropractor, and they've got three great, uh, beautiful young children as well. So we're both family men from from that perspective. And uh, health, you know, health and family first for us. So uh, so thanks again, Jack. And uh, again, we'll have all his information in the show notes as well, so you can check that out there. And for those of you listeners, just remember, you're more valuable than you think. We'll see you on a future podcast. 
Well, that's all for this show. And I want to thank you again for spending your valuable time with me today. And if there was something you heard in this interview that you have questions on or you want to dive into deeper, then drjockers.com is the best place to go. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking just a quick moment and giving us a great review. Your reviews help us influence more people and transform more lives. And if you took something valuable away from this episode, then please share it with someone in your life you know it can help. We'll see you soon on a future podcast. Be blessed, everybody.